So go to John chapter 17 with me. I want to read. You know, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so that prayer came to be known as the Lord's Prayer. But I would rename it and call it the Disciples' Prayer. I believe the real Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, even though that whole chapter is a prayer. But I'll summarize the first couple of parts of it. The first part is where Jesus, he prays for himself and his relationship with the Father. He says to the Father, will you restore the glory to me that I had with you in the beginning? So he's dealing with his relationship with his Father. Then he focuses on the disciples. And he tells the Father, he lifts them up before the Father. He says, I don't take them out of the world. I leave them in the world, but I give them a charge. And he talks about that they would be one as he and the Father are one. But he doesn't stop here. He then goes on to pray for the church. And that's where I want to pick up on. Verse 20 says, I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, y'all. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. The emphasis in that part of scripture, actually throughout this chapter, is one, being one. Jesus being one with the Father, the disciples being one with Jesus and one with the Father. And then Jesus prays for the church, that the church will be one with the disciples, that they will be one with Jesus, and that they will be one with the Father. That emphasis there is oneness, unity. And so that's what I want to talk about on this morning. If you need a sermon title, and actually the title is important this morning, and it's called The One New Man. We're going to talk about the one new man. What is the one new man? So this morning I want to discuss a mystery. There are many mysteries in the word of God. This mystery is of the one new man. We'll be coming from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, with the main focus being on verse 15. But before we get into this, let's give you some background here. This letter is addressed to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor in what is now called modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul has a, had a deep relationship with the saints that were at Ephesus. You can see this in the book of Acts, chapter 20, when Paul sends for the elders to come to him that are from Ephesus. The reason why he sends for them is because he knows that this is the last time that they will see him. 
because the Holy Spirit has already revealed to him that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the cause of Christ. When they hear this news, they begin to weep over him because they don't want to see this happen. They have so much love for him, but then they pray for him and release him. Ephesus is the first church that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 2. This is the church where Jesus rebukes them for leaving their first love. He, 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 he praised them for many things, but this was the one rebuke he had for this church, that they had left their first love. In my opinion, if you want to teach the complete theology of God in the church, and you, and you only had access to one letter, the one letter would be Ephesians that you would want. The first half of the letter focuses on the theology of God and the salvation that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood. The second half of the letter focuses on how to walk and live out the theology that Paul taught in the first three chapters. So I highly recommend, if you want to understand God's love for us and how he predestined us before the foundation of the world and then how we should conduct ourselves as saints, I highly recommend that you look at the book of Ephesians. Now, let's talk about this title, this one new man. Exactly what is the one new man? It is the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to one another and the reconciling of Jew and Gentile to God. And out of this reconciliation is birthed what the scriptures call the one new man. Now, why is the one new man important? I'm throwing this phrase out at you, and you may or may not have heard of it, so you might be wondering, okay, what is this really all about? So let's do a little history here. In the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, it was to be preached to no one but the Jews. We see this when Jesus sends out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. He sends them out, all 12 of them, and says, Go to no one else but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We also see this in Matthew chapter 15, where the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus begging that he would heal his daughter or her daughter. And he says to her, I am not sent but to anyone but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when you read of that woman's faith, her faith was so great, he ends up calling her a dog, and she says, yes, that might be so, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said, great is thy faith. I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. But God knows what he was doing. He knew it would not remain that way. He knew that the gospel would go beyond the Jews, but that was the starting point. We see a hint of this in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to turn there real quick. It's very important that we see that salvation was the plan of God from the very beginning. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, it says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, 
and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. It's as if Jesus is speaking before he even came. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's us, y'all. That's who he's referring to here. Says, my, says, it's a small thing for you to just, for me to send you into the earth and just save Israel. God says, I want the whole world. So I'm sending you as a light to all of the Gentiles. But after Christ's resurrection in the day of Pentecost, God officially opens the way to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 when he sends Peter to the house of Cornelius to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to them. Now, as the church grew in number, the number of Gentiles multiplied while Jews became a greater and greater minority, which eventually resulted in Gentiles dominating the church. Growing anti-Semitism began to spread in the church as it became more popular culminating in the church actually splitting from its Jewish roots. If you study it out, you'll find out that they actually held councils and made decisions saying that the church would no longer acknowledge its Jewish roots. Now, in my opinion, that really made no sense because the biggest root to the church is Jesus, who is Jewish. So that really didn't make any sense, but it occurred anyway. But now, after over a thousand years, we see this reversing as more and more Jewish people are receiving Jesus as their Messiah. It's like God is coming full circle. He started out with the Jewish people, and he's going to end with them. As the number of Jewish brethren increases in the body of Christ, I believe the mindset of the church needs to change in how we see ourselves. That's one of the things I want to address on this morning. And I have as a note here, I want you to understand what the word of God said 2,000 years ago, it still says today. I want you to understand that because if you're like me, you can read a passage of scripture over and over and over again and miss so much. And then when God turns the light on, all of a sudden you question, was that there before? How many have had that experience? But it's been there from the very beginning. 
So now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 11. Paul is talking about in this chapter where he says, For by grace you are saved, and then not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained before the foundation of the world. So God preplanned all of this. You're not sitting here by happenstance. God planned this before you were even created. That's one of those things that when you really try to think about it, it makes your mind go poof. Now let's look at verse 11, because there's a shift here. It says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So let, let's stop there. Paul acknowledges that there was at least a divide between Jew and Gentile, even after the resurrection of Christ and Gentiles started to get saved. If you want to read a little bit more about that, go to Acts chapter 15. But what Paul wants to explain to these believers who are at, at Ephesus, most of whom are Gentiles, he wants to explain to them how desperate your situation was. Look at this. He says, you were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now let me explain that a little bit. The sign of a covenant with God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant was circumcision. If you were circumcised, that meant you were in covenant with the true and living God. Everyone else was referred to as the uncircumcision, and for the most part, that was looked at as an insult. Or somehow, I'm above you. Okay? So that's what Paul is referring to here. Then he goes on to say that at that time you were without Christ. He says you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel says that you were strangers from the covenants of promise. And if you really don't understand that, then he summarizes it. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. In other words, I'll put it another way that he puts in another, the way he says it in another place in scriptures. You are by nature the children of wrath. You, that's how desperate your situation is. That the wrath of God abided upon your heads. And you were destined for an eternity in hell. That's where you were. But then he goes on to say, good thing he didn't stop there. But now, I always love the buts in the word of God. Because normally that, it, he starts with a bad thing and then that word but hinges and turns into a good thing. 
He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, here is the thing. What were you brought near to? Or who were you brought near to? Now, in my upbringing in church, reading that, I would have said I was brought near to God. And that would be true. But in that context, in verse 12, he says you were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel and that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. So not only was I brought near to God, but I became a part of the commonwealth of Israel and I inherited the same covenants that God gave to Israel. That's why in Galatians chapter 3, he says, if any man be in Christ, then is he Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When I started to think about it, I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's a whole new world opening up to me here now. Because as a believer growing up, I'm just thinking, okay, I'm in relationship with Jesus. But when I study the Old Testament and I start to see the promises that God made with the children of Israel, I began to understand that what he promised Abraham, he promised me. Amen. That what he promised David, he promised me. Amen. I was like, oh, hold up now. This is getting good. I would compare it to this. Well, no, I'm going to save that. We're going to come back to that later. Let's get back here on track. So now we are an heir of the commonwealth of Israel and of the covenants of promise. We have a hope. And I always stress this because when you hear that word hope, in the world when someone says hope, well, I could hope to win a million dollars. Doesn't mean I'm going to get a million dollars. But when God says you have a hope, Replace that word hope with the word expectation. You have an expectation. You will receive because God is not a promise breaker. He's a promise keeper. So now you have a hope and you're with Christ. You're with God. You in. Or you're in. I didn't say that right. I'm married to an English person, so I got to get that right. <laughs> now, one of the things that I think it's important to understand, and I want to emphasize here, is that I talked about how the church long ago decided to divorce itself from its Jewish roots. But I've come to understand that this is a Jewish book. This is a Jewish book with promises that were made to the Jews. Now, if you need proof of that, let's do this. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Now, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, 
We have that famous verse, verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. And then he goes on to prove that all Gentiles are sinners. That wasn't difficult to do. But then in Romans chapter 2, he then shows that Jews are under the bondage of sin as well and are just as deserving of the wrath of God. And so after proving this, he asked this question in verse 1. He says, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, if we all bound for hell, why in the world did I go through circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the sayings of God, the covenants of God, the scriptures of God. You learned about what it means to be in relationship with God, which gave you a leg up on everyone else. Now let's go to Romans chapter 9. And remember, keep in mind, what we're showing here is that the Bible is a Jewish book. Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. The reason why Paul says that, because so many Jewish people had rejected the gospel of the kingdom, had rejected Jesus. And of course, Paul being a Jew, he had a great burden for them. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that it's to the Jews that everything that pertains to God was given to them. I'll tell you something that one of those light switches that came on for me. Growing up in church, I learned a lot about the new covenant. And I thought the new covenant was simply a church thing and primarily a Gentile thing. Until I read Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's go there real quick. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. Now, I want you to stay with me here because there's a reason why I'm going down this road. Jeremiah 31 and 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the new covenant was given to Israel. Man, I'm telling you, that was a light, that was a bright light that came. I was like, whoa, I never thought about it like that. And then here's what clinches it for me. Go to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. And we're going to start at verse 11. Paul is talking about the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. He says, have they stumbled that they may permanently, permanently fall? And he says, God forbid, they have not. In verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am, a, am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Talking about the Jews. For if their casting away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? What is he saying here? In part, the rejection of the gospel by the Jews worked to our favor because when they rejected the gospel, God turned his attention to us. But after turning his attention to us, he's saying, while my attention is on the Gentiles, if the Jews recognize the error, then what will it be if they turn to me in repentance? In other words, if they turn to me in repentance, there's going to be a party in heaven because the children have come home. Amen. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, the Jews who rejected Christ, they were broken off of the original olive tree. God saw us, he calls us the wild olive branches, that you were grafted in. But keep in mind, the original root is Jewish. So keep in mind that what you have in Christ is not exclusively for the Gentiles. In fact, 
Keep in mind that you don't support the root. The root supports you. What you've become a part of, in other words, is a Jewish thing. That it was intended for the Jews. Jesus talks about this in one of his parables, where a king throws a party, a banquet, and he had a particular group of people who the party was for. But when he summoned them to the party, they all had other stuff to do. They came up with excuses. This greatly upset the king. And he says, okay, since the folk who the party was intended for don't want to come, go into the highways and byways and get whoever is there and invite them into the party. That's us, y'all. We were invited to the party, but keep in mind that the party was for them. was for them. <clears throat> Becoming a part of the kingdom of God, the way God has planned it out, I would compare it to this. Remember what I was going to say earlier? Now I'm going to say it. <laughs> I like telling stories, as you know. And imagine that I'm a young black child on the streets of Germany. How I got there, I have no idea. But I'm living on the streets. I've learned to survive. I don't know if I speak German or not, but. Well, while on the streets of Germany, I befriend this young German child. And for some reason, this German child just takes to me. He, he likes me. I like him. We hang out. We, you ever seen that video on YouTube or on Facebook where these two kids go running to each other once they see each other? How many seen that video know what I'm talking about? That's us in this German. That's me and that German child. So we just hang out, always having fun. The parents of this child notice how much this young child loves this little black kid that's living on the streets. And for some reason, because the child has taken to me, the parents take to me. And eventually, because this child loves me so much and I love this child, they decide to adopt me. Now, when you get adopted, Everything that belongs to the natural child falls to the adopted child. Everything. So their name becomes my name. Their heritage becomes my heritage. Now that might be a little bit difficult to imagine a young black kid who's German. Now, in the flesh, that's not really true. But according to the law, that is exactly true. Their heritage becomes my heritage. Their name becomes my name. And guess what? All the rights that the natural child has falls to me as well. And guess what? 
I forgot to add this little bit of information. His family's rich. So what the natural child receives, I will receive as well. Now, after I become a part of this family, the young child welcomes me in. and I have my own bed. We sleep in the same room because, man, they can't keep us apart. Even though they have another room for me, they can't keep the two of us apart. Now, since I've become a member of this family that formerly I wasn't, it would behoove me to understand what it means to be a part of this German family. What is the dad like and what doesn't he like? What does the mom like and what doesn't she like? What are the rules of engagement? How do I get along here so I don't mess this up? Because I can't just come in with my own way of thinking because I live, because I had to think a certain way because I lived on the streets to survive. But now that I've become a part of this family, the way I thought when I was on the streets will not work now being a part of this family. So I need to learn what it means to be a part of this German family. Well, it's the same way for us as Gentiles who have become part of the Jewish family. Because it was to them, we just read, let's go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. It says, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So since God gave it to them, it only makes sense that if I want the fullest understanding of these things, that I might want to sit down and talk to them. That I might want to figure out how they see it, because it was to them that God gave it. Now, when I make this statement, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we need to become Jewish, y'all. Not saying that by any stretch. God doesn't say all of a sudden, well, because you are now part of the kingdom, you need to do what the Jews do. In fact, they had a big to-do about that. And God said, no, you do not have to become Jewish, if you will. But it does make sense to understand the scriptures since these are the things that were given to them. And see, now we're going to get to the part of why I believe this is so important. So I kind of went off script, so I got to find my place again. So give me a second here. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. we've just shown that what we have in Christ by nature if you will since it was originally given to the Jews that is Jewish in nature but verse 14 says this I'm going to read down to verse 18 for he himself talking about Jesus is our peace 
who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. But through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the work of the cross, what did the work of the cross accomplish? Paul tells us, it's for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So he made Jew and Gentile one. Then he talks about how through the cross it has destroyed the enmity that existed between the two. Now that word enmity is talking about hostility, hatred. Jesus' death on the cross broke that down. Now, why did his death have to address this? Let's think about it. You're a Jewish. The oracles of God have been given to you. The law of commandments have been given to you. The priesthood has been given to you. The covenants of God have been given to you. You've experienced the glory of God. It's been given to you. And the fact that you were the chosen people of the true God in light of the idolatry that you're surrounded by. Guess what happened with the Jewish people? The big head. They went around as if they were superior to everyone else. How many have been around any, anybody else who thinks that they're better than you? What kind of feelings did you have toward that individual who thought that they were better than you? You, you, you kind of, I'll put it like Chicago would put it, they, you kind of want to get with them. To show them that, no, you're not better than me. Over the years, this created a great hostility because the Jews were not alone in this. The Gentiles were full of pride as well. They worshiped their gods as well. And so this great hostility developed between Jew and Gentile, but Jesus' death on the cross addressed it. It destroyed it, the Bible says so that Jew and Gentile could become one. Because it destroyed the middle wall of separation. But of course, that's not enough. Because you can be united with someone else. And you hear that a lot about we need to unite, we need to come together. But I don't want to come together with people if coming together with people means I'm in opposition to God. No. 
I'll stand by myself as long as I'm standing with God. So there was not only enmity or hostility between Jew and Gentile, but because of the nature of sin, there was enmity or hostility between God and man. Do you see the picture here in this chapter? Jesus' cross brought Jew and Gentile together. And then Jesus' cross brought Jew, Gentile, and God together. You have in this chapter the very illustration of the cross. I want to emphasize this because nothing is possible without the cross. The cross is the central piece of all of this. You, you, it united Jew and Gentile, and it reconciled all of us to God. Now I have here what makes all of this possible. The one new man. The cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say this for my daughter, if you will, and she knows who she is, who I'm addressing. We say Jesus Christ, but Jews say Yeshua Mashiach. It's his cross that makes us one. Amen? Amen. Now, What was God's ultimate goal? God had an ultimate goal in bringing or reconciling Jew with Gentile and re reconciling all of us to him. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So what was God's ultimate goal? To build his family as a temple so that we would be a dwelling place for his presence. Paul tells us, know ye not that ye are the temple of God? You no longer belong to yourself. That's God's ultimate purpose, is to dwell in our midst as a body. That he may manifest his power, his presence, his love in our midst. Now, the main reason why this excites me so much is because if the one new man that is spoken of here and how God accomplishes his purposes in uniting Jew and Gentile, if Jesus' cross can deal with the divide, this middle wall of separation that separated Jew from Gentile, there's still hope for America. And specifically, there is still hope for God's church here in America. Amen. 
The whole point for me going through this is to get to this. And I'm going to share my heart with you. It grieves my heart to see the body of Christ here in America so divided. We're divided based on race. We're divided based on politics. And we are divided based on denominations. Now, I often tell my wife this. We read in John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Now, we often ask God to answer our prayers. If God is going to answer anybody's prayer, it's going to be Jesus. Let that sink in. I, 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 see, I hear people like, well. If God is going to answer anyone's prayer, it will be Jesus's. In other words, what am I saying? Those walls have to come down. Those walls have to come down. How separated are we? Here is one of the things that really I wonder about this. The last election, everyone knows how contentious that election was. And I know I'm going some places that even angels fear to try. <laughs> I'm trying, brother. But the last election, everybody has an opinion about what happened in the last presidential election. But here's the thing that stumps me. And it's not just this last election, but it's been previous elections too. White, Bible-believing Christians overwhelmingly vote Republican. That's not a curse word in here, is it, Pastor? <laughs> Black, Bible-believing Christians overwhelmingly vote Democrat. Now, how is that possible? Now, I don't mean to leave out Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans, but the, the major part of this issue revolves around black and white. How is that possible when white and black Bible-believing Christians serve the same God, worship the same Lord, honor the same scriptures, and have the same spirit. How is that possible? Here is what I think. It goes back to our roots. It goes back to our roots. Because everyone has an interpretation of the scriptures. And it's not just based on white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. It's based on Presbyterian, Baptist, First Baptist, Third Baptist, Fourth Baptist, however many Baptists there are, <laughs> Methodist, 
Everybody has, but we all serve the same God, worship the same Lord, and have the same spirit, and read the same scriptures. How is that possible? We've left our roots. We've left our roots. Because again, it was to the Jews that God gave these things. And so, since it was given to them, it would be incumbent upon us, hey, how did they receive these things? Now, when I say the Jews, let me clarify that, because that covers a lot of area. I'm not talking about Judaism as it pertains to today. I'm talking, to, I'm talking about the authors of scripture, all of whom were Jewish with the possible exception of Luke. But then there are those who could make the case that Luke could possibly have been Jewish. At the very least, we know Luke hung out with Jewish disciples. So again, I return to the fact that this is a Jewish book given to a Jewish people who have a Jewish Messiah. And to them were given the covenants, the law, the glory, the adoption. Is it possible that if we return to our roots, a lot of the division that we see in the body of Christ here in America, based on race, politics, and denominations, those walls would come down. That they would come down. Because we just read in Romans 3, when the Jew asked, then what advantage is it in being a Jew? Why did I get circumcised? Because to them were given the oracles of God. Hear my heart. This is about the one new man, the uniting of Jew and Gentile, the uniting of black, white, Hispanic, the uniting of male, female, the uniting of Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Throw in whoever else you want to throw in there. Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, Church of God in Christ, Church of God. The world gets confused about what am I supposed to follow? Because here's what I hear. Which religion am I supposed to follow? There's so many of them. And what they nine times out of ten mean is, which Christian faith is am, I, am I supposed to I think this displeases God. Notice in the scriptures, Paul addresses the church at Corinth, the church or saints at Ephesus, the church at Rome. That's the only dividing he has location. Other than that, in Paul's eyes, we're all saints. In Paul's eyes, we're all part of the church. In fact, he, co he corrected the church at Corinth because they were dividing themselves according to who baptized them. And he was like, why are you doing that? That's the world. And Jesus said this, they will know you. Uh, they will know that the Father hath sent me by the love you have one for another. But if all the world sees is division, 
Is it any wonder that our witness in the world is so ineffective? So we need to return to our roots. We need to return to the one new man. What God accomplished at Calvary's cross, that's going to require, because here's what needs to happen, especially between black, white, between the races all together. Because everybody got a wrong that they can get mad about against another race. All of us. We need to come to the cross. We need to come to the cross. Where repentance takes place. Where forgiveness takes place. Where the old man dies. Now let me talk about this old man dying. Because we tend to focus on just sin. And of course, dying to sin is very important. But you know what you also need to die to? Your past experiences. Come on now. You need to die to your past hurts and pains. Here's the reason why. I'll give you a great illustration. We got a lot of parents in here. And those of you, your children may be grown, but if that's the case, think back. Your eight, nine, ten-month-old child has something that they're holding on to. And they, 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 man, they carry this everywhere they go. But then they see something else that they want. But in order to be able to embrace the next thing that they want, they have to let go of this. How many have had kids that struggle with that? But guess what adults do as well? Because we want to hold on to the pains of the past because we believe we're justified. They wronged me. And they deserve whatever punishment God will give them. But God says that very same person wants to be free. And God says, well, in order for you to be free, you have to forgive them. You have to let go of the past. And since I'm out here, I'm going to go ahead and I'm out here now. We know the pain I know as an African-American, the pain and the suffering that we have endured here in America at its founding. And I don't dismiss that in any way. One thing I've come to realize, I told you guys about my mad black man days. And I'm going to end with this. I went through that being mad at white people. 
for how they wronged us. I went through that. I studied, you know, I read Malcolm X books. I had the X cap. How many remember the Malcolm X cap when the movie came out? I got caught up in all of that. But God said, not so. Because I've shared with you, every time my wife had this inside, my wife and I had this inside joke. Every time you want to get mad at white people, a nice one comes along and does something for you. Because that's how it happened. Am, am I telling the truth? And here's what I learned. No one, absolutely no one, can make up for what happened to my ancestors when this nation was founded. No one can. And from a human perspective, we are justified in our anger. But from a kingdom perspective, if we don't let it go, it's going to kill us. It's killing us now. And that doesn't just go for us. That goes for anyone in here. If you are holding on to pain, to hurt, to unforgiveness, the person that you won't forgive is not going to die. It's you. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. That's why the one new man is so important. Because in the one new man, I talked about the old man dies. If you let the old man die with its sin and its past experiences and past hurts and past pains, now you're in a position to embrace the new man in Christ. And all of the blessings, all of the promises that being in the new man brings. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet.